Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you're listening to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I'm joined uh, with Jason Baxter, Associate Professor of Fine Arts and Humanities at Wyoming Catholic College, to talk about his new book, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind, published by IVP Academic 2022. Many readers know Lewis as an author of fiction and fantasy literature including the Chronicles of Narnia and Space Trilogy. Others know him for his books in apologetics, including Mere Christianity and The Problem of Pain. But few know him for his scholarly work as a professor of medieval and Renaissance literature. What shaped the mind of this great thinker? Jason Baxter argues that Lewis was deeply formed not only by the words of scripture and his love of ancient mythology, but also by great books, including and especially medieval literature. For this undeniably modern Christian, authors like Dante and Boethius provided a worldview that was relevant to the challenges of the contemporary world. And here, readers readers will encounter an unknown figure to guide them in their own journey, C.S. Lewis, the Medievalist. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your new book. Thanks. I'm really excited to do it. Great. Well, tell me a little bit about your academic background and how that journey led to the writing and publication of this book. Yeah, it's a perfectly placed question, I think, because I had read uh, Lewis as a teenager and enjoyed him. And I had read a lot of his fiction. I had read uh, a lot of his nonfiction, a lot of his sermons and things like that. And independently of that, I studied classics at University of Dallas, classical philology, and at Notre Dame, I studied Italian studies and tried to use that as a way of putting my background in classics in touch with with medieval studies. So I studied basically Platonism and its role in the, in Latin Middle Ages, despite the fact that the Greek texts were lost, and how Dante Alighieri may have had access to these types of Platonic sources, this type of, you know, I guess what you could call Platonic mysticism and how that influenced Christian spirituality and what it meant to even do poetry. And I suppose at that time I was trying to, you know, be a proper graduate student. I was trying to have a nice up-to-date bibliography citing nothing which hadn't been published in the past 3.75 years and, you know, dealing with the, and of course, Lewis, you know, I knew Lewis was a medieval scholar, but I didn't have any time for him because, you know, I thought he was, he was out of date and passe. So when I did start to read the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids, I kept having all these strange moments where I thought, that's really odd. That feels like Bernard Silvestris here to me. Or, wait a minute, is Lewis borrowing this from Boethius? Or, that feels like a borrowing from Dante. And then, of course, that drove me back to his nonfiction, to his, particularly his, his academic work, to his allegory of love, to his discarded image, um, to his uh, history of English literature in the 16th century, some of his, you know, some of his formal academic lectures. And I realized that this guy had beat me to almost everything interesting I was trying to say. That he, he, you know, sitting around in in libraries in Oxford, oftentimes reading, not even, not, not only even, you know, not reading modern editions, but reading, you know, like 15th century Renaissance editions or even stuff in manuscripts. We're not even talking stuff that hadn't been translated. We're talking about stuff that hadn't been edited, right? That he's reading it in medieval handwriting or the Renaissance printed books. And he has, he had sort of reconstructed the background of Dante, which I was also trying to do, even though I had access to all kinds of really great 
really cool modern tools, including translations, including modern, modern critical editions, including good introductory textbooks. But Lewis is just, you know, you know just uh, this library rat, as the Italians would say, you know, going around reading all this stuff. And he had, he had done this. And so I think my, my astonishment of what he accomplished and how he sort of beat me to everything then all of a sudden made me curious in a more academic way. Wait a minute, how deep does this go? And my initial uh, conclusions in this book are, it's, it's everywhere. That I think for the popular reader, you would think that being a professor of medieval culture and medieval literature would actually ruin your ability to talk to the regular reader and I get that, right? You know, the the elbow patch wearing professor in a corduroy jacket, right? Might not be the most up-to-date person capable of reaching a, a wide audience. But the argument of the book of, is that not only is, Medi- is C.S. Lewis's medievalism everywhere, and not only is it just beneath the surface, but in fact, Lewis's success as an imaginative writer and as an apologist was because of his day job and not despite it. And so that's what the book is about. Thank you for that. Um, C.S. Lewis loved Boethius, he loved the constellations of philosophy. And you talk about how he kind of models himself after that. Can you uh, elaborate on the way in which C.S. Lewis thought of himself as a new Boethius? Yeah, I call him the British Boethius or the new Boethius. And um, I think I think this is most telling when you see how Lewis talks about his own culture. I mean, he obviously, you know, quite a critic of uh, mid-20th century, machine-using, technologically addicted, reductivist uh, modernity as he saw it and felt a little bit out of place in that. Um, but it's really interesting when he, when he sort of talks about what he thinks about apologetics, he says a couple of things. One, he says, you know, we're really going to have to convert people to paganism before we can make them Christians again. Um, two, he calls his contemporaries modern barbarians. And three, he says, we need to, this is not really the best possible time to do that really fine-grained, surgically precise splitting of particular dates and times. Is there a difference between a Silver Age Statius and a Golden Age Virgil and a late antique Boethius and a early middle medieval Charlemagne and a late medieval Dante or an even later medieval Cusanus? Yeah, there are differences, and Lewis knew that, knew that. But he preferred not to. He preferred not to emphasize those things. He preferred to do this thing, which I call the Long Middle Ages, in which he wanted to read Gilgamesh and Samuel Johnson as kind of contemporaries in a way, which irritates you know some some professional scholars, understandably. But in any case, when you think about these three things together, right, the conversion to paganism, the sort of unity of the of the pre modern vision of life. Um, and, oh, there's one other thing I wanted to add. He also, in his apologetics, writes about the importance of what he calls vernacularizing things, translating everything into a kind of everyday speech. This is exactly what Boethius is trying to do himself. Boethius in, you know, sometimes called the last of the Romans, the first of the medievals, is one of the last figures in the, in the medieval West to have access to Greek. And in fact, that seemingly gets him into trouble because he's suspected by Theodoric and company of being in league with the Byzantine East to overthrow this newly established Ostrogothic uh, kingdom of Italy. Um, But Boethius had these incredible intellectual plans and designs in which he wanted to translate all of the dialogues of Plato and all of the treatises of Aristotle. Uh, Then he wanted to write an introductory treatise translating from Greek into Latin for all of the seven liberal arts. And then he wanted to write seemingly this big, huge monograph in which he would have reconciled Plato and Aristotle and then would have reconciled the liberal arts with theology. In other words, as I say, he sort of anticipated Raphael's school of Athens by a thousand years. And if he had lived lived to senectitude, he would have done it. He would have translated all these things. He would have written the treatise. He would have... and you know, Western, Western culture could have been really different, but it was all cut short and he's sent to prison and then executed. And he has a couple of years in which he writes, 
you know, the constellation of philosophy, which he tries to cram in a whole lifetime of intellectual ambition um, into, you know, as he says to Lady Philosophy, this isn't exactly our cozy library, is it, Lady Philosophy? But he has a chance just to do a sort of thumbnail sketch of his project. So he's vernacularizing, he's translating for a barbarian audience, which is what Lewis more than once calls his own contemporaries. He says, they're just a bunch of barbarians, by which he meant they're cut off from classical past and glad of it. They boast of it, analogous to sort of Theodoric. So I think Lewis, Lewis thought of himself as being in this very, in a transitional age, very much like Boethius, in which an age of new barbarism, which, which despised the classical past. And so he had to translate the classical past for them. He had to work it into imaginative stories, and he had to work into apologetics. Um, and he didn't really have the luxury of doing these surgically precise academic precisions, right? When you start talking to uh, a general audience about, you know, what are the rhetorical stylistics which separate this, you know, Silver Age poetics from Golden Age poetics, right? No one's going to come to your talk. <laughs> I mean, as you mentioned to me before the show began, classics departments are dying um, because of these things. I mean, stuff that I think is beautiful knowledge to have is just not um, trending right now on Twitter. And so Lewis found this extraordinary way uh, to take these things, to translate them, to vernacularize them, and to give them sort of fresh life. But it meant a little bit of a sacrifice. And he has to write about the long Middle Ages and what unites Virgil to to Jane Austen. Um, and the sort of great worldview, the great atmosphere, as he loved to call it, that we had lost. That's the sense in which... Rather astonishingly, I think um, Lewis models himself on Boethius to the extent, and this is where the book begins, that he includes him in this 1960 letter to the editors of the Christian Century of what books influenced his sense of vocation. I mean, just, and we could just pause to think about that for two seconds, right? Why are you who you are now? Uh, because of this guy who was writing in the 520s AD. So it's really interesting in some sense how urgent and contemporary the medieval past is for Lewis. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that emphasis on the urgency, but also on translation. And as we go into the content of the old Western or medieval paradigm or conception of the universe, you talk about in, in, in the immediate chapter afterwards, the cosmos. There's a prefab Sprout song called The Sound of Crying, which talks about we're... we're we're at this new world order where we'll, where we'll sing about the, the music of the spheres and that your whole chapter is emphasizing that the cosmos has harmony and you have this important notion of transposition. So can you elaborate on, on what did Lewis think of transposition and how that related to the, this medieval notion of the universe or the cosmos as a, as a, as a music, as a harmony, as an order? Yes. I don't know why this is such a difficult thing to talk about. Maybe it's exactly what Lewis had identified that living on the other side of the great divide in a disenchanted cosmos and a world that has gone through a process of what Charles Taylor calls excarnation. Just to describe it seems like you're, you're you know, trying to weave a fairy tale. But um, I think... I, I, Lewis himself, even, even Lewis himself seems in a similar sort of situation because he keeps using different types of metaphors to describe this thing he wants to talk about. Sometimes he calls it sacramentalism. Um, sometimes he calls it almost sort of, you know, scare quotes, symbolism. Um, I like that sometimes he uses this cool term transposition. I like to use the term of uh, iconicity. Um, just thinking about... Um, sort of 20th century descriptions of what Byzantine icons are and the sort of metaphysics of, of icons. But for Lewis, in transposition, he uses what I still think is the, the best metaphor for thinking through this, of before an age of recorded music. If you want to know what, a, what you know Mahler's uh, new second symphony sounds like and you don't have access to recorded music, what do you do? You buy some talented pianist uh, transliteration of it, but you also know how much you're missing. 
you know that you're missing kettle drums. You know when Mahler creates these, you know, gargantuan orchestras of four hundred, you know, four hundred members of an orchestra, or his, you know, symphony for a thousand voices. Right? You know you're missing a lot when he's just sort of reduced to the piano. Now, if it just so happened that you have gone to hear the symphony and then you have access to it by means of the piano, you can use the piano as a tool for recollecting what you had earlier or earlier heard. In this way, you have something of a higher level language, an orchestra, trying to squeeze itself into a lower level language, a piano, uh, a piano keyboard. And Lewis says, well, look, this happens when you're trying to translate languages with huge vocabularies like Latin into languages with tiny vocabularies like Anglo-Saxon. In some sense, it's, it's the lower level language is melting down under the pressure of its burden. It's trying to do something which is on a higher level of being and doing the best it can, it can to contain this high, higher level of reality. This is what Lewis means by iconicity. And in the medieval view, the world is sacramental. The world is symbolic. The world is iconic. Or the world is a transposition or a transliteration. It is an attempt, as Boethius says in Consolation of Philosophy, echoing Plato's Timaeus, that through time and space, to try to give a glimpse or a hint at what eternity is. Boethius has this extraordinary line, which I guess you could write books about. <laughs> Moreover, people have. Um, time is the imitation of eternity. Time is the imitation of eternity. Lewis thought that our ancestors knew what that meant and felt it in their bones. And that we, in a mechanistic age, which is so excellent at describing the analytical composition of bodies, and as well as predicting their motions, like think of Galileo and, his, and Leonardo and their sort of predictions of projectile motions, that were excellent at describing the sort of external compositions, but had lost in the scientific revolution, which he calls a period of new learning and new ignorance, had lost this sense of inwardness, as his buddy Owen Barfield called it, had lost a sense of the iconicity, had lost a sense that material beings could be constituted in the sort of way to yearn and to groan. And thus beauty is this sort of overflow and excess of meaning which indicates material creations grasping, yearning to point to something beyond itself. Therefore, the best way to think of the medieval cosmos is to think of it as a big, giant cathedral or a big, giant temple. And I had a lot of fun writing this passage. Um, and I'm also proud to say it's completely unoriginal. Um, I just stole it from Cicero and from Macrobius and Chalcidius and Dionysius, Lewis's authors. But here's how, here's how I put it. Standing in a medieval cathedral gives you a kind of X-ray vision of the world. Meaning is everywhere, full and rich. The material world has been gathered to a saturation point. In a cathedral, the spiritual world feels like it's leaking in. And our response is to want to soar up and through and out. Simply look up any of the black and white photographs of Salisbury Cathedral, and you'll see what I mean. If, if for us, Hubble telescope and particle accelerators and X-rays and gamma rays and these sort of sensitive detectors are where we almost have a kind of mystical reverence for our tools, that they're revealing something more of the depths, in the Middle Ages, that was the cathedral. This, the cathedral was that X-ray vision or that Hubble telescope or that particle, particle accelerator, which, you know, creates for, I don't know what, like a millionth of a second, a deep reality reveals it, quote unquote, to our eyes, except not in time, but rather in space. Um, and thus to think of the world as a big, gigantic cathedral, a big, gigantic icon, a big, gigantic transliterated symphony which is doing its best to fit into a lower level, but is, is experiencing what Umberto Eco describing medieval calls, the med medieval beauty calls spiritual radioactivity. That's what Lewis thought 
the medieval cosmos felt like. And that's why in a weird, in a weird way, it was harder to be mediocre in the pre-modern world. Doesn't necessarily mean it was easier to be good, but it was harder to be mediocre because there was this kind of current that pulled you. Discussing the cosmos as a cathedral reminds me of a certain Byzantine thinker who believed that the universe was modeled after the tabernacle, maybe taking this notion of a cathedral cosmos too literally. With, with the notion of transposition, throughout your chapters, you indicate the way in which Lewis applies these medievalisms to his writing. How do we see Lewis transpositioning, right, the complicated to the vernacular in his apologetics and or fiction? Yeah, great question. I think you could say you find Lewis doing transpositions in two ways, ethical transpositions and epistemological transpositions. That is, um, surprising moments where he gets us to flip our paradigms and feel what we think is as the solid, ordinary, stable reality as strange and shadowy. Um, but in terms of, for example, in terms of his ethical transpositions or his ethical translations, he has a cool little essay on chivalry in which he says, look, the genius of the Middle Ages is that it made a double demand. Whereas most ages are either content, think of sort of like archaic Greece and Achilles and Agamemnon and Hector and friends, right? Like the virtue is this kind of violent, uh, sometimes even cruel manliness in which you go and destroy your enemies. Um, that is virtue almost in sort of the Homeric world. Now, not maybe not for Homer himself, but for the Homeric heroes. And Homer's kind of a genius because he, I think he transcends those horizons of expectations. But in other ages, Lewis thought our age, he said, look, we're a bunch of urban, you know, <laughs> milksops, right? We, so all of our talk about the importance of peace is not merely because we're more peace loving, as Stephen Pinker would suggest, than our ancestors, but some of it's just because we're cowards. And, and so, you know, different ages sort of prefer and incentivize one of these virtues simultaneously. But in the Middle Ages, Lewis thought the chivalric code sort of, you know, like bringing two similar, you know, poles of a magnet together holds together, though they're trying to repel one another, um, these two different, radically different virtues that you have to be both meek and humane to be a knight. And you also have to be accustomed, as he says, to the sight of lopped off limbs and men screaming in pain. But in some sense, you have to have this sort of extraordinary fortitude and this extraordinary meekness simultaneously juxtaposed. That was Lewis's compliment to the chivalric age, as well as his argument why we needed it. Well, if you keep that in mind, when you come to something like that hideous strength and one of my favorite scenes, this really weird seance scene, right? In which the, uh, <laughs> the planetary intelligences are invoked such that they descend individually and breathe this atmosphere, crucial term for Lewis, breathe this atmosphere in which whatever spiritual virtue that they are best, uh, sort of best capable of cultivating gets into the gets into the body and gets into the bones and gets into the nerves and the pulses of the people in these rooms. Well, so you have these different things. You have um, all of the virtues of the planetary intelligence, including the marshal, the, as Lewis says, they look around and, and the, under the influence of Mars, they look around at each other and say, it is good to be with these it would be a privilege to die with such on the field, right? But then also Venus comes and brings this kind of uh, celestial touch, this sort of like profundity of love and wakens up the eternal ache. But then Saturn comes and Jupiter comes. And, and so I think what you see here is Lewis in this kind of crazy, I don't know, sci-fi space travel, space travel series brings 
one of the things he admired most about the Middle Ages, its complicated polyphonic nature. That is, it wasn't content with a single idea, but wanted to weave a tapestry of multiple values and virtues simultaneously in complexity, which is what on a musical level polyphony tries to do. That's where you see Lewis doing a little uh, transposition right there. In terms of this other type of transposition, what I call the uh, epistemological, or right where he tries to shatter your the paradigms of your expectation, think about the end of the Great Divorce, where I don't know for whatever reason uh, in sort of popular <laughs> culture, popular imagination, hell seems like this really cool place where cool people who wear leather jackets and are in biker gangs and, you know, give the finger to society and do what they want to do. And, you know, and uh, they're, they're strong and individualistic and they love pleasure rather than responsibility and stuff like that. That's where you get to go, right? <laughs> if, you're, if you're sufficiently individualistic, right? If you do it your way, as Frank Sinatra said. And so for us in popular imagination, Lewis thought, hell seems like this really, you know, robust you know, gritty place where it's, it's like, it's like, it's like your favorite dirty bar, right? That still, still allows smoking, right? It's kind of like sticky and gross, but it's real, right? It's not fake. It's not uh, Olive Garden or something. Like tangible, that. tangible. Yeah. Right. It's textured, right? Yeah. For us, hell has this sort of like weighty realism in our imagination. Whereas as Lewis loved to say, to endlessly sort of skewered bad hymns and bad sermons that give visions of heaven. Heaven seems lame in our popular imagination, right? It's a bunch of angels wearing sheets and, you know, playing cytheras and sitting on clouds and it's, you know, a toilet paper, toilet paper cherubim and things like that, right? It's just Putti, Raphael's Putti. It just, it seems like such a, uh, a diluted, adulterated sort of experience, Right. Of course, it was the exact opposite from the Middle Ages. That's why Lewis admired Dante so much. But it's also why at the very end of The Great Divorce, um, his guide gets down on his hands and knees and says, I can't be for sure. But if you look right here, I think this is where you came out of in hell. And it's a tidy, tiny little sort of fragment. In other words, in the world of heaven, which is spacious, capacious, large, weighty, Bright, clean, sharp, hard. Hell, all of hell is contained in like a molecule of, of heaven's dust. And so Lewis sort of saves that for the end. And it's one of these kind of mind-bending, paradigm-smashing, big reveals, right? In, in season five, maybe season six. You have to wait all the way to the end to get it. But it's, it's, it's breathtaking. And in that sort of way, I think you see that as a, a cool up-to-date modernization, vernacularization of some of the tricks of, say, the Pearl Poet or of Dante's comedy, especially the Paradiso, who are constantly trying to make us feel, or even or even going all the way back to Cicero um, and the, the dream of Scipio, who are tr- constantly trying to make us feel this world as light in comparison to the next world, which is heavy, and thus epistemologically reverse our paradigms. So, so going back to transposition, you, you've stated this notion of weight of glory so well and the complexities of medieval thought. But with transposition, a metaphor Lewis uses is looking at the beam and then looking around the beam. So explain Lewis's thought process of that metaphor and how it relates to not only transposition, but his reading of, of medieval texts and the Im- application within his own texts. Yeah, I'm really in love with this concept of Lewis. And I think you're referring to his neat little essay, Meditations in a Tool Shed, in which Lewis says that once upon a time, he walked into a little garage tool shed and he saw this crack at the top and there was light coming through. And he could see in the dust particles, and it looked like the sunbeam was sort of suspended in the dust particles. And he was looking at the beam. And then just for fun, he sort of came in and he oriented himself so that his eye was directly along the beam. And what he said happens, of course, is you don't see the beam. The beam, you know, disappears. 
what you see is the blue sky or the sun on the other side of that, you know, or through that crack of the wall, and you look along. This was Lewis's way of trying to touch a distinction which he had read in a work long before, which made, uh, which used the terms of contemplation and meditation, or rather contemplation and enjoyment, in which you sort of switch back between thinking about something, and then all of a sudden, I guess what we might say in sort of you know modern uh, cinematography, a point of view shot, we sort of step within it. And for Lewis, this was the, the secret mystery of literature. Um, literature is this magical thing which creates that point of view shot or creates that along the beam experience or that experience of enjoyment or what you might even call a haptic, tactile, tangible, embodied experience, right? Seemingly what um, Lewis anticipates modern neuroscience by you know a half century. But what we're beginning to show now is that um, literature can sometimes fire parts of the brain which are activated when you're actually doing the activity. Um, so if I lie down there and, and, and read about a man who's fleeing from a dog with sharp teeth and salivation and he's absolutely and his, his pulse is elevated and, his, and his, uh, he, he's sweating as he runs, we can actually sort of touch sort of parts of the brain that are only activated when we're actually engaged in this activity. Literature is haptic. It's embodied. Uh, Lewis also loved to refer to literature as like going for a country walk in a landscape. Literature is immersion in a landscape as opposed to studying a map. I love that. I think that's such a cool idea. Um, there's so, I mean, um, you know, think of like uh, Proust and the squid, right? Uh, sort of contemporary literature or brain science of literature. It's, it's really cool stuff for Daniel Kahneman's sort of stuff of thinking fast and thinking slow. I think in the near future... I don't know if I necessarily want this, but nevertheless, we'll have it. In the near future, we'll be able to put someone in a, in a bodysuit, right? And we'll be able to measure the size of the sweat pores and the dilation of the pupils and the heart rate and all the electromagnetic activity all over the brain. And we'll probably be able to come up with individualized uh, thumbprints for every single reading experience or maybe even every type of genre. And it'll be this hilarious moment in which we'll just verify what people were saying 2,000 years ago that uh, genres exist and are meaningful, right? But Lewis sort of anticipates all of this. Now, my fun discovery was... Lewis also gets this from Boethius. Um, he, or at least feels that it's completely compatible. Because in book five, Boethius makes this, this, this a very you know, similar distinction between the different sort of uh, level, or, um, sensing faculties of the human being or our, our ways of engaging the world. Now, what we ordinarily think of as the highest human faculty of rationality is for Boethius one rung on the ladder lower than something which he calls intelligentsia or intellectus, right? Which is this extraordinary, I don't know, you know, quote unquote, mystical faculty, which sort of reaches in and doesn't just see the components of something or the definition of something, but experiences its unity. It's a very, it's very, um, it's too bad that Boethius was in prison. I would have loved to have to have given him some more time to work this out in ways that all of us could understand. But in any case, this this idea of switching from ratio to um, intellectus or intelligentsia is something that Lewis picks up on, and this language, this Boethian language, also pervades his very description of his autobiographical conversion and surprised by joy. So what Lewis calls flashes of joy moment in which the universe feels saturated with meaning, sort of spiritual radioactivity. And it's a beauty which so, is so beautiful and so deep and so profound and so weighty that it feels like it's melting down or there's just too much to take in. Are these temporary flashes of Boethian intelligentsia which we then sort of revert back to ratio and try to capture. Oh, this is even at the end of uh, Out of the Silent Planet, where the, the, the figure of Ransom writing the Lewis says, man, I wish I could tell you how the planet smelled. And I wish I could tell you what it's like to be to have friendship 
with a foreign creature. I can give you facts about them, but the thing itself always remains elusive. Anyway, this distinction between contemplation and enjoyment, between looking along and looking at, between looking at the map and being in the landscape, between breathing air and uh, right um, and feeling something and capturing the thing itself is absolutely everywhere. And we can also find it in Boethius. I think that's a that might be that might be the discovery. The moment of my book It's probably the most boring uh, moment of my book uh, for my poor readers. But I think it's the I think it's the moment of my book that I'm most excited about in terms of what I was able to uh, describe and how I was able to show Lewis's indebtedness to Boethius. So you speak of intelligentsia as almost or quasi-mystical, and you have a whole chapter on C.S. Lewis as a mystic, but you kind of preface this chapter by saying C.S. Lewis said some negative qualities about mysticism. How do you square up Lewis's seeming disdain for mysticism and the and, and then your position that Lewis was actually missed um, well had mystical qualities to his theology and was indebted to thinkers like the pseudo-Dionysus or the cloud of unknowing. Yes, I, I say that Lewis was pastorally constantly warning people off of mysticism. I think because he was he was terrified of vague spiritualities replacing a robust and tradition-rooted, ethically grounded, neighbor-loving, 6 a.m. rising, <laughs> chapel-attending Christian life. As he says in The Weight of Glory, Tomorrow will be a Monday morning, right? Monday mornings come after your Sunday mornings. And so I think he was, uh, I, I use this joke too often, but I like it. I think he was worried about the, about the person in his or her Toyota Prius racing to the yoga studio to go get spiritually deep and flipping off people as they cut them off in, you know, in line <laughs> in order to go get spiritual. There's kind of a disconnect there, right? You feel like it's, there's this sort of spiritual depth that I can just jump to if I get in the right space. Lewis there's was that I think, demographic. There's that demographic that's so popular now. I'm spiritual, but not religious. And Lewis almost in a sense is prophetically foretelling that, that movement. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. For Lewis and for the medieval tradition, you have to be religious before you get spiritual. And I think that's what all of his medieval, all of what his medieval authors say. In fact, in my uh, in my book, an introduction to Christian mysticism, I say that look, if you pick up one of these old Christian mystical texts, you're going to and it's not anthologized, you'll be really disappointed with about eighty eight percent of it, because it's talking about boring stuff like um, <laughs> virtue and self sacrifice and ascesis, and um, it only gets to the quote unquote good stuff sort of buried in the, you know, buried in the text. So much of it is sort of, you know, this, this very difficult preparation before you win the right to um, move within. So I, so I actually say that his public disavowal of mysticism is actually really faithful with the medieval tradition of sort of safeguarding the, those who are amateurish in the spiritual life from thinking that they can jump to profound depths and yet, and yet, I nevertheless, I think this sort of mystical impulse is um, ubiquitous in Lewis. Um, as I put it in, well, for example, I just love the fact that, uh, and Chris Armstrong uh, pointed this out, that he le- reads 15th century mystical texts like the Theologia Germanica for his spiritual devotion on a daily basis with pencil in hand. Lewis, incidentally, Lewis at one point said he couldn't read anymore without a pencil in his hand. But he's reading these 15th century spiritual texts as his sort of daily devotion and, and, and marking them up. But one such thing was the cloud of unknowing. Um, as I write, for the author of the cloud, since God is beyond knowledge, you have to use love to overcome the gap. The great Dionysus, another one of Lewis's favorite books, or favorite authors, takes a more cerebral approach. 
Since God is the cause of being, he must be above being. And he, if he is above being, then there is no predicate, no attribute that can be properly and fully applied to him. If the author of the cloud is practical, warm, and impassioned, Dionysius is sublime, academic, brilliant, and challenging. He teaches an apophatic theology, that is, a negative theology, in which we review traditional divine attributes, God's names, and declare them inadequate. We declare them inadequate. I think if you just hold that phrase in mind while rereading the Narnia books or the Space Trilogy, you'll be astonished to see at how many junctures the narrator says, and and one of his favorite things to do is to, to, to say how difficult it is to describe taste of fruit or smells, right? The inadequacy of language. And I think so for Lewis, the sort of graduate school of the spiritual life is coming to terms with the inadequacy of language. And when we do that, our eyes are opened and perhaps our mouths too. And we stare and wonder at the fullness of being, which translates itself back to transliteration or transposition, which translates itself, but poorly into our crude lower level of language. And that for Lewis, is just absolutely everywhere. It's ubiquitous in both his pastoral writings as well as his fiction. So Lewis is so cognizant of, and, and this is a question I think maybe goes beyond the book, so you can answer this brief if you'd like, but Lewis is cognizant of the instability of language, of the, the failures of language to properly capture true reality. What would Lewis think of late 20th century postmodernism that says language is is unstable, that these grand meta narratives, be they past medieval or Marxist or liberal democratic, are 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 we've we've seen through them. We no longer live in an age in which those narratives make sense. What what would Lewis take to these to these thinkers as who who seem to be voicing something different, but but there are moments of similarity. I think you would be irritated by them. Um, I think, uh, you know, I've got some cool passages in the book and quoting his letters about how he feels about modern theologians. <laughs> I think you would be irritated by them. Um, I, I'm just thinking a little bit about um, Michael Vincent DeFuccia's book on Owen Barfield called Philosophy, uh, Owen Barfield, Philosophy, Poetry, and Theology. Just pulled it off my bookshelf behind me. And um, DeFuccia is dealing with exactly with this very question which is, I think, a really cool question and something I'd like to know more about. Um, and how he goes about it is saying, making a distinction. Thing, he's thinking about you know Greek here, how there's an active voice, there's a passive voice, but then there's a middle voice. And if sort of navigating those kinds of two extremes that, uh, I mean, analogical thinking, right? Um, that by using, well, I I think this is where literature comes in for Lewis by using literature, by using poetry, we're doing, we're doing something analogically. We're doing something in, in the middle voice. We're avoiding the two extremes of thinking that we have a complete control over language, maybe like modernism, an active, you know, an active, uh, voice, or thinking that we have zero control over it, a sort of passive voice. And when we talk, we're only sort of describing our own desire to talk. But we're sort of constantly navigating. Catherine Pickstock, you know, talks about the, the liturgical use of language. We're trying to move toward that. And to a certain extent, we're, um, by revealing our own linguistic inadequacies, we're creating space for something of a revelation of the thing toward which we're oriented. I think Lewis would just love that. Um, and I mean, uh, Barfield at one point calls that romanticism comes of age. Um, again, it's sort of like, you know, Barfield is the sort of the, the prophet of, uh, of Milbank and Pickstock, right? Um, the morning star of, of, of uh, radical orthodoxy. And so I think Lewis would feel really comfortable with that. But then Lewis would just kind of say, no doubt, grumpily, it's all in Plato, which I guess Catherine Pickstock wouldn't deny either. Um, it's all in Plato. What do they teach people these days? 
And so I think he would say he having sort of initially expressed his disdain maybe for the sort of the purely nihilistic strand of postmodernism and its pure passivity and loss of meaning would then just want to say, what do you think Homer was doing? Right. Homer, the theologian, right? I mean, when Homer says, if I had 10,000 muses and 10,000 voices, I'm, I'm conflating Homer and Aeneid here just a little bit, such that I could, and a chest of bronze, such that I would never grow weary of singing, I still couldn't adequately describe to you. And yet he was going to write for another, you know, 4,000, you know, 4, 000, or 400 pages, right? I think Lewis would just say that, um, I no doubt grumpily, but what he would mean at the at the root of it is that it seems that we're just sort of repeating a debate between poetry and philosophy, which has already played out before. Um, it played out in ancient Greece. It played out again in the late Middle Ages in the period of scholasticism. It played out again in Romanticism. And this is our way of re-encountering. So I suppose maybe the cool thing and maybe this is almost kind of, you know, hermeneutics, right? Is why is this debate so perennial? Why can we not escape these types of questions? And that, that maybe that's where things start to get really interesting. No, for sure. And, and within these discussions of poetry, philosophy, Plato, I'm not only being reminded of postmoderns, but sadly of my graduate days struggling to read Heidegger, who focuses over and over on uh those before and after Plato. So to go to kind of a penultimate chapter is on conversion and on unveiling. Lewis is so known, especially in the American evangelical born again context as someone who was, who converted rather radically from stubborn materialist atheist in his collegiate years to a devout and influential Christian. How does Lewis draw from the conversion and the unveiling notions of the medieval period in his own writing, in his own conceptualization of conversion for himself and in his work. Yeah, so uh, probably the, you know, the last quarter of the book is concerned with counterbalancing, fugally, contrapuntally, if I can... Uh, go back to my metaphor of uh, polyphony from earlier, the notion of the apophatic and the cataphatic. That is, if ultimate reality is both transcendent and exceeds our capacity to linguistically describe it, it's also true, and this is just pure uh, Dionysius the Areopagite, as Lewis himself knew well, it's also true that the world tries to get as much of God's revelation in it as its material material structure will allow. It's as full, it's as steeped, it's as crammed, it's as packed as it ontologically can contain. And so if you think about these sort of two poles and, and Lewis is, you know, traditionally, I, you know, I think within Christianity, you have whole ages which are more apophatic and you have whole ages which are more cataphatic. You have a whole ages which are so tuned into the majestic transcendence of God. And we see it in their art, don't we, right? We see the Byzantine pan, you know, uh, pantocrator on the, uh, on the apses of, of, of churches, ruling in a fearful majesty. And then in the era of Francis, you have uh, the sort of first nativities, right? You see the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothing, right? So different ages are, have different sort of missions or different sort of talents of emphasizing either the cataphatic or the apophatic, right? Lewis is just very concerned of trying to bring those two together simultaneously. And in some ways, that's what his conversion is really all about. He wanted to be super, I guess, apophatic in a way, like a 19th century idealist, right? But he began to worry about that, that, that sort of vague spirituality didn't create con concrete commitments that God felt so far away. And they were just, it was too easy. You could sort of be like vaguely and reverentially nod to the principle of life force, but it didn't actually say anything about how I, whether or not I should love this, you know, annoying person in the office, you know, next to me, right? The sort of concrete weighty demands of the particular. So a lot of Lewis's conversion is about that. And I describe it, 
by using the one modern theologian, philosopher of religion, Martin Buber, that Lewis really, really did love and seemingly loved him more and more and more over the course of his life. He was sort of suspicious of him at first and was writing his buddies like Barfield and some of his other correspondents say, what do you think of this? What do you think of this Buber guy? Is he genius or is he heretical? But toward the end of his life, he just loves him. And the distinction, of course, is the I-U distinction or the I-thou distinction. Um, and so I think the the unveiling scene of Orwell fictionally is trying to recreate a moment like that. Of course, Orwell is this figure who feels that she's ugly. How painful is that just to begin there? <laughs> and and in, in an era that is so conscious of, you know, body hatred and self-loathing, right? We're, we're captivated immediately. She feels she's ugly. So she wears a veil, protects her, protects people from seeing her and gives herself a sort of mystique, projects an image, right? Controls this virtual image of herself through her veil. But she does it so long that she forgets what actually is underneath in all the senses. She actually forgets what her face looks like. She also forgets in some sense, who she is, what she looks like. And in the end, she's made to, I think everyone sort of, and uh, our era is sort of greatest fear. She's made to unveil. She's The veil is ripped off. And in fact, um, she's even made to undress. And so she sort of stands there in this kind of spiritual nudity and is seen by all for exactly who she is. And she gives a speech in what she says, who she thinks she is. But now in the context of, uh, of this vision, it just it, it doesn't seem to be consistent. And she's sort of made to see this. But here's, the, here's I think, the, the great sort of surprise. Not in a way in which she's humiliated or um, made to feel small, but in a way in which she's forced to stop trying to generate a self-image of who she thinks she ought to be so that she will be loved. And she just sort of drops all this paratext, all this paraphernalia, all this disguise, and just lets herself be loved for who she is. Lets herself to be loved in her concrete reality, not in her idealized notion of eventual futuristic self-perfection. That is somehow related to all these huge historical themes of the apophatic and the cataphatic Here's how I conclude the chapter on that. Lewis gives in fictionalized form his idea of unveiling. That deep confession in which I stop hiding from myself and stop hiding from my God and come into the full presence of God, who is now a thou, a you, encountering divinity in all of its purity and loveliness and mercy and even fearful intimacy. Only this can wash away our fierce clinging to the small loves of this world, our twisted possessivenesses, and can make us clean, but we need the gods to do it for us. With the I thou I it distinction, the I it seems to be so rooted in Lewis's critique of contemporary culture, mechanistic, overly rationalistic, overly concerned with uh, petty economic desires. As we move to this final chapter, we get to the we get to the big grand universal concepts so many people in our i it era of utility see the universe as it exists today as demonstrative of god's non-existence and non-involvement it's way too big way too complicated and it has no relation to the universe of jesus ascension the splitting of the sea god opening the so-called doors of the heavens and letting the water out. And so it seems almost in relation that we, in turn, look at this indifferent universe and focus on these, uh, uh, how we can use reality in our earth and how we can uh, employ it. But Lewis says, as, as you indicate, that maybe the medieval cosmos, at least in its, to use your term, atmosphere or in its, paradigm, not in its contents, is similar to the contemporary cosmos of quantum mechanics, of nebulae, of ever-expanding entropic universe. Yes. 
I guess I've already used this line to claim that a passage of my book was my favorite, but this, if I've said it before, I hope your listeners will forgive me. This is clearly my favorite. Um, there's a cool moment I quoted at the beginning of my uh, chapter called Modern Science and Medieval Myth, in which Lewis imagines a little fictional exchange between an atheist and a Christian. And the atheist is saying some of these things. Um, the atheist says, you see, the real objection goes far deeper. The whole picture of the universe, which science has given us, makes it such rot to believe that the power at the back of it all could be interested in us tiny little creatures crawling about on an unimportant planet. It was also obviously invented by people who believed in a flat earth and the stars only a mile or two away. Christian Lewis responds, when did people believe that? Atheist. Why all those old Christian chaps you're always talking about, Dan? I mean, Boethius and Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Dante. Medieval mind of C.S. Lewis. The Christian replies, sorry, said I, but this is one of the few subjects I do know something about. He reaches out his hand, he hands him an old book, and the atheist translates, the earth, in relation to the distance of the fixed stars, has no appreciable size and must be treated as a mathematical point. That's from Ptolemy. There was another short silence. Then the atheist says, did they really know that then? Did they really know that then? I'm just a, I don't even know if I can lay claim to such a lofty title as amateur scientist. Um, but from what I understand, we live in a world of deep time and deep space and, um, a world in which what Pascal said, that man is sort of strung out between two infinities. Pascal didn't say it like this, but the infinity of molecular biology. Think of someone like Dennis Noble's The Music of Life, right? And we don't really believe in junk DNA anymore, right? Um, what we believe in is a sort of infinite musical capacity. 40,000 Bach fugues, which haven't yet been written in our, in, in our very sort of you know, molecular biology. So we have this infinite sort of infinity below us. But then this cosmos, which is not just vastly larger than anything that we could conceive before Hubble, but is accelerating and is weirder and stranger. And there are, as you said, there are black holes and neutrinos and these fundamental particles, which might be made up of even more fundamental particles. And we don't know how deep it goes. And the world is weirder than it was just a couple hundred years ago in the sort of the billiard ball, 18th century frock coat wearing gentleman, Newtonian, you know, Laplace, Descartes, Galilean kind of universe. The world's gotten strange again. And this has actually created a really cool, as one of my professors called it, parallelogram. Not exact identities, but cool repetitions of certain types of patterns, analogies in which the absolute um, strangeness of the, I don't know, I guess we could call it a post-Newtonian, post-modern cosmos, was anticipated in a world which was packed full of all kinds of strange beings and um, strange you know, types. Just read Bernard Silvestris of Alan of Lille if you wanted an example of this. But the medieval space travel is a story of constantly being dazzled by what is actually out there and being rebuked right, for being Horatio for having too few things in your philosophy than there are in earth. So I think Lewis thought that this is like, this is not a problem at all, right? Um, for a traditional Christian who understands, and maybe this is part of the, the problem of the Anglophone tradition of conservatism and liberalism is because what we think is deep time goes back to, you know, at most the 18th century, right? If you're a traditional Christian, right, you start putting some millennia on you as opposed to just a couple of decades or centuries. It's just not a problem. This sort of, this, this sort of like dramatic, you know, dr dramatic nature of the universe is um, almost sort of, in, even in our own contemporary descriptions, almost mythological in this dazzling variety. And I think that gives you a little bit less contempt for medieval science when you recognize that this that the same sort of impulse to be awestruck and dumbfounded in the wonder of variety, maybe in the medieval world, is analogous 
proportionally analogous to our tendency to be awestruck and dumbfounded by the um, sort of numbers of quantity. And this is where Kuzanis is really the sort of like great bridging figure, isn't it? Who brings with him a sense of the symbolic cosmos and the platonic, um, you know, interior descent, but already is on the verge of modernity, on the cusp of modernity, and sort of predicting something like calculus 200 years before it's discovered. Yeah, uh, I, I go back to that ayet because, and you mentioned that dumbstruck or dumbfounded. In this chapter, you talk about how both medieval thinkers and, and even even our cosmologists speak of anthropripheralism, humans being on the periphery of the universe. And in, in an ayet society, a mechanistic culture, you, you speak earlier about an evil enchantment that occurs in our society. That the dumbstruck, awe, you know, dumbfounded, awestruck reaction to the universe now is existential despair and dread. It's we are meaningless, floating on you know spaceship Earth. The sun will explode. But yet, but yet that that medieval dumbstruck, awe, you know, awestruck, dumbfoundedness is is reverence for God's beauty, for God's cosmos. In your final chapter. You speak about that that long something also again going back to weight of glory to transposition, nostalgia for the future. How can C.S. Lewis help those who, instead of seeing God's caring beauty for every atom and subparticle, have have dread and, and nihilistic despair? Yeah, I think Lewis's. Intuitive, really smart about this. I think he anticipates something like Charles Taylor's argument in a secular age that the fascinating part of dwelling within the imminent frame is that it can be spun closed or spun open. And it's really something you have to bring with you from outside of this interpretive paradigm, but both paradigms can make sense. You could see the infinitely expanding universe and its hugeness as being a sign of a, a world which has been evacuated of, of divinity and souls and rationality. And, but you could also read it as, as the great story that you could read, which makes your own personal story so small that you actually take delight that there's something outside of you. And Lewis continually does this. He does this with Western in the space trilogy, he does this with uh, Uncle Andrew in the Chronicles of Narnia. He does this with Gumpus. That, and this is just old-fashioned, you know, Byzantine theology. When I show up to the world, and haven't even beyond moved the, beyond the stage of ascesis, then everything I look at, I look at with what our ancestors would say with avarice or cupidity or lust. But we might say a sort of itching possessiveness. Uh, and this is kind of Heideggerian, isn't it? I walk through a forest and I think about it as so many potential reams of paper and it's commercial. I measure the natural world in terms of its productivity. I wonder how many tons of coal are underneath this landscape here. I wonder how it costs to extract it, right? And I think in terms of quantity, I think in terms of time, I think in terms of um, liquidation of assets, such that I have a kind of itching possessiveness and I can't even allow this landscape, this creature, this animal, this uh, whatever, this ecosystem to be what it is, to tell its own story. I can't even see it. But if I could, if I could step back with what Dietrich von Hildebrand calls the virtue of reverence and allow it to unfold in its own inner complexity, I might be dumbstruck by what it is. And if I got into a regular habit of doing that, I might actually be able to see the world as an infinite set of infinities, such that I'm not going to a landscape or a place or a thing to make it my story, to reduce it to my interest, to my life, but I'm willing to let my life sort of slip into a grander narrative. That's a way of reading the world in Taylor's terms as an imminent frame spun open. In which case... The infinity of the universe is not a sign of desolation. It's a sign of a bigger story to which we're being invited to. 
in which we have to give up the pleasant feeling of being the genius composer and allow ourselves to become a single note within a, someone else's symphony. And it's both liberating and difficult. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we're, 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 we're out of time, but your erudition and passion would, uh, I would love to hear it for, for hours and hours more on this topic and especially on your other topics. Speaking on other topics, before we end the podcast today, I just want to ask what future projects do you have, uh, partially because I'd love to have you back on the New Books Network to, to discuss it. So what's in the storehouse for, for you, Jason? Yeah, I'm working on some translations. I'm translating Dante's comedy, um, Inferno 2023, Purgatorio 2024, Paradiso, divinely, perfectly planned 2025. <laughs> um, and I'm writing some new commentaries on that, which I'm particularly excited about. Um, commentaries which, which will try to deal with Dante's poetry in, in light of the complicated polyphonic nature of medieval theology. So I'm working on those translations. Um, and just between us and your listeners, I want to write some novels. And I've got some some novel ideas, but I also have some scholarly book ideas. I want to write a companion to C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, a sort of follow-up on, on this book, but sort of more practically applied um, interpretation. And I'm, I'm writing about... Um, I'm writing about what, why we need medieval theology. What is the world for? What is nature for? Um, and yeah, those are some of the projects that are going on right now. Well, this book seems like a wonderful kind of prolegomena introduction, conceptual uh, starting point for any future undertakings on medieval theology. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time, for sharing with us uh, about this wonderful and, and as we discuss at the end, relevant book, to spiritual realities. Uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day. You've been listening to New Books in Christian Studies, channel of the New Books Network, and I've been your host, Jackson Reinhardt. Have a great rest of your day. Goodbye.